Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing. Ezra chapter 7. The uh, book so far, Ezra chapter 7 and, uh, and 6 and 7 were a two-chapter narrative, and we had to cut off because I went too long on chapter 6 last week, but we will finish the narrative, which is Darius's response in, in, um, that we're there. So, I'm sorry, that was 5 and 6. 7 and 8 is a two-chapter narrative that's about the second wave. So the next group of people that come back to build the temple. Chapter 1 was the Edict of Cyrus. Chapter 2 is the names from the first wave. Chapter 3, they build the altar. Chapter 4, they get opposition from the Samaritans. Chapter 5, God invites them to get back to it. Um, and chapter 6, they get a confirmation from Darius to go ahead and fund the project extravagantly to get this second temple built. So chapter 7 what could make the story even better? Wave two, another mass exodus from Babylon of people coming back to Jerusalem and Israel. Verse one. Now after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Saraiah and son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Mariath, the son of Zerahiah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. That is a huge name. All one name. So clearly Ezra comes with, you know, a lineage, and, and that's how he announces himself. This is the book of Ezra, and it's likely because it took him five verses to say his own name. And we should note in verse 1, it says, now after. What now after is, is two words that represent 60 years of time has passed since last week. So we have this, and the way we get that is we went from Darius to Artaxerxes. Well, what they don't say is there was a guy that led Persia in between the two, which was Xerxes. And a lot happens during Xerxes' rage. So I was telling stuff like what amazes me is you go from a, a God's perspective, 60 years is basically just passed over in the Bible like nothing. But from the world's perspective, the whole planet changed in those 60 years. Massive changes happened in those 60 years. So the work of God rebuilding this temple uh, happens in these periods. The mess with the, the Jewish people... Uh, and everything that's going on here has been, um, in that 60-year period of time, the entire book of Esther happens. There's an effort to genocide the Jewish people and get rid of them. God intervenes through Esther and Mordecai to completely shift the, the presence of Jewish people in the Persian Empire and their reputation and their, their ability to um, not not only not be killed by the Persians, but to actually have positions of authority in the Persian court. What becomes unique in addition to that, um, Xerxes is the king over the story of Esther, but what we, we know a few things about Xerxes too. There is a battle called Thermopylae that gets fought here. It becomes history lovers' famous story of when you're fighting on your home territory, very few Spartans can hold off thousands and thousands of Persians. In fact, the Persians came with what was called a million-man army to invade Greece. 
that was was part of their conquest. In eight in 480 BC, Xerxes loss of basically 7,000 Greeks hold off 100,000 Persians. Sounds kind of Old Testament, doesn't it? And in fact, at one battle, the Battle of Thermopylae, they find a, um, a gap in the mountains that could be held by very few people. And the Persians, their numbers actually worked against them because they had to funnel into this very narrow pass. And the legend of the 300 Spartans that hold this ground for seven days, in seven days' time, eventually all of these Spartans get killed but you have 7,000 people with their Athenian colleagues holding out for seven days with 300 Spartans, and you have this near-miraculous kind of thing. But basically what's happening is two very different worlds are colliding. The world of the Greeks were free city-states that interacted with each other on a voluntary basis. The Persian Empire was one of conquest, territory, and slavery, captives and non-captives. So you had these very two different worlds colliding, and it's also, and, and don't miss the biblical perspective. You start missing, messing with the Jews in 490 BC and try to eradicate all the Jews. Ten years later, the massive Persian army basically gets decimated in multiple battles throughout Greece. And this is historically what happens when... Um, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar starts messing with the Jews and forcing them to worship his idol, it's not long after that he loses his mind. When nations come against and try to destroy the Jewish people, you can start a clock and see how many years it's going to take for that entire empire to get destroyed. And this happens again and again through human history. And the Persians were no different. They're on the decline under Artaxerxes. Their mi military power is not feared around the world. Um, Salamis happens also during this time. The Battle of Salamis uh, was a naval battle. The Persian army was decimated by disease, lack of food. And then eventually the Plataea battle, Battle of Plataea, is the ones where the, the Persians finally retreat and head back to Persia. And they leave Greece alone. And what happens with the Greek is that the general leading the Greeks at this time, and, and again, the, there's just these little pieces. The guy's name was Leonidas which was the Greek root for that is the lion, which is also the animal that represents Judah. So you have this, and, and again, they're not associated with each other, but you do have a free people that allow the freedom of religion suddenly winning a battle of a few hundred people versus thousands of people. And the, the, the lopsidedness of this battle changes the whole relationship of everything. In addition to that, as the Greeks rise in power, there's this season that the Greeks have with no contest to their territory. And when you have 100 years with nobody attacking you, your population grows, your culture grows, and the Greeks start to do things like build theaters and civic arenas and libraries. And out of that comes a young general named Alexander in 330 BC who conquers the known world. Alexander the Great is what he's called. So this is a lot of stuff going on, but during between Ezra seven and Ezra or Ezra six and seven, now after these things, there's a lot of things that happen in that sixty years, and God is already setting up the Greeks. And what's I think most significant about the Greeks is that for prophetic texts like the Old Testament, Hebrew is the perfect language. You can say things in the Hebrew that are true in the present tense, future tense, and past tense. You can't do that in the Greek. The Greek language is the perfect philosophical language. 
So what God, I think, is doing is he's birthing a generation or multiple generations of people that are going to speak Greek because of the conquests of Alexander. Those transitions happen in now after these things. And God's at work getting ready for Jesus. I think that when we read the epistles, when we read the gospels, we're reading what was originally Greek language being spoken. And the, the, I think the pleasure of what we're seeing here is that God's at work and he starts doing all this work when there's struggles in other places. So notably, the Greeks allow religious freedom. They allow all these things to happen. Ezra takes a very long five-verse name. It, it's arguably the longest name in the Bible. Um, and he shows, the point of the whole thing is he's showing he's a legitimate descendant of Aaron, the high priest. Yes, the Aaron that was the brother of Moses. So Ezra makes this trip um, about 21 years after the invasion of Persia into Greece fails. The, the empire of Persia is rattled. They're struggling to keep their, their provinces paying taxes. And we have uh, this Ezra coming up in the moment of this. Um, they list 16 generations from Aaron to Ezra, but we should know that some are left out. Uh, some are not put in there, so it's a selective list of his heritage that's put in there. Um, and Ezra has taken over as high priest. Previously, Sarariah was the high priest, but at this point, Ezra has stepped into that role. Another thing to note about the name, just the first few verses, notice the name Zadok is in that list. That's a pretty big deal. The line of Aaron got changed out as the priests became corrupt. David... King David replaced the high priest with a Zadok priest, also a descendant of Aaron, but he switches the family line, so it's not necessarily the oldest sibling all the way through. This is also true of Jesus's heritage. So he uses the line of Zadok. This is a second instance. When Ezra came back, and we saw in previous chapters, they reestablished the music ministry. The music ministry was established not by the Torah, but by David. So the way in which Ezra and the people in this generation treat David, that's 1st, 2nd Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, they're treating that as scripture. And I think that's important to know. It's not that they just made believe these things. They accepted that God was with David because of the validation that happened. So the changes David made to worship actually modify the Torah slightly. And one of those changes is the music ministry. Another one of those changes is we're going to talk about the line of Zadok as the high priest not other lines that are there. So Abiathar was an idol worshiper. He gets taken out. Zadok gets put in. The other thing that's significant about Zadok is that the line of Zadok, if you change the Z to an S, becomes the line of the, the Zadises, or what later become the Sadducees during Jesus' era. So Ezra's high priest starts a tradition that the Sadducees claimed they were the descendants of. The thing is, when we get to Jesus' time, the Sadducees had been cast out of the temple, and they were not serving as the high priests, but they maintained a very influential group in the Jewish culture because they, were, they had claim to that role of high priest. So we can get into the rest of that part later, but just know that these are the seeds that are coming right up to the time of Jesus and what we're seeing here. So... The Sadducees start kind of their significance with Ezra and Ezra's reign and the influence of Ezra. Verse 6 then, this is kind of important, combines the two roles. And so we have three major roles in the Old Testament. There's prophet, there's priest, and there's king. And in Ezra, we actually get Ezra being the high priest, but he's also a prophet. 
And so he's combining the two roles. He's not the Messiah. He's not also the king. Um, Zerubbabel kind of has that position. But you get this Ezra. This is the Ezra we're talking about. And I love that verse 6 kind of starts with that. This is the Ezra we're talking about. And for the Jewish people and the readers of this, this is not Ezra just being arrogant in his own book. Ezra has major influence on the Jewish people. In fact, some people tradition-wise say that Ezra was as significant as Moses himself. There was Moses, who by the way was prophet, and his brother was the high priest. There was no king at that time. So Moses didn't actually combine the two roles. There's only two biblical characters that actually combine the roles. That is Ezra and Jesus Christ himself. Jesus becomes priest, king, and prophet, all in the same person. But the precursor to that is Ezra. It's the only character in the Bible to serve in two of those roles at the same time. Um, and he comes up from Babylon. He was a, skill scri a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. The king granted him, granted him all his request according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nethanim came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. So we're in, uh, we're in Ezra chapter 7, by the way. Sorry, I could have stopped to say that before. So as we get into this, in Ezra we have these two roles in verses 1 through 5. He's both a teacher and a prophet, verse 6. One that speaks. A prophet is someone who says the words of God. So a, a scribe there isn't just that he made copies all the time. The role of the scribe is to be the one that not only records the word, but actually teaches the word too. Very few people could read. So a scribe was somebody that was, able, was maintaining the texts themselves, but also some that would teach the people, and they generally taught in the courtyard of the temple. But if there's no temple, you teach in the synagogues. So this marks the end of the era of the prophets. Ezra will be the last prophet or someone to speak for the name of God or in the name of God. The last prophet we're going to see for 400 years. Um, you could argue Malachi, but Malachi is actually prophesying right now. And so what we're about to see is a huge gap where between Ezra, the next prophet we're going to see is John the Baptist. And again, we're getting right up to the New Testament. Like everything historically, we're, we're getting right to that edge. Ezra then becomes another ideal. If Moses was the ideal prophet and King David was the ideal king and, you know, Isaiah or Ezekiel, or the, we had some pretty strong prophets in the past, Ezra becomes kind of this ideal, idealized priest or prophet in the Old Testament. Um, Ezra combines these roles and in, in a sense is kind of that next step right before we see Jesus Christ show up. And Jewish tradition marks these things in a lot of different ways. So Ezra ends the idol worship. This is one of the things that makes Ezra significant. Everything post-Ezra, the Jews don't go back to idol worship. They do it militantly. Like they are, the part of the role of the Pharisees as a group of people was initially as they came back from Babylon to ensure that there's not even a hint of breaking the law. So in every community of Israel, Ezra instituted this group of people, Pharisees, that would ensure that the people living in their communities were obeying the law because they were never again going to fall back into sin like they had. In other words, Israel has dabbled with sin for a few hundred years. At this point in their history, they're sick of it. And I think on a personal level, we have to get to this point. 
You can dabble with sin for years, but you're just wasting your years. And at some point you're like, I'm done dabbling with sin. I'm so sick of the fruit of it that I'd actually want to pursue something different. The problem with the Pharisees is by the time we hit Jesus, they've actually gotten into legalism. And they've invented a bunch of rules that keep you even away from maybe breaking a rule. And so what happens by the time you get to Pharisees is it, it's so hyper-religious and hyper-authoritarian that suddenly there's no joy in serving God because all you're worried about are the rules. And Jesus kind of has to bring them back from that. But at the time of Ezra, there is a, a holy focus on doing good, being good, and reading what the word says and letting that define the nation. So Jewish tradition marks this. His focus on the word of God encultures the Jewish people to hold the Torah as scripture. There is no other way. There is no other God. It's an absolute revival. So when it says skilled scribe, he's not just a scribe. There's an adjective there that he memorizes it, he teaches it, he's a judge, he's a lawyer, he's respected for his knowledge of the word. Then you get to verse 7. Some of the children of Israel. This is interesting. In the second wave, another wave of people are coming, but it's clearly not all of the children of Israel. Not everyone comes back to Jerusalem. There are a number of people that stay back in Babylon. Zechariah and Haggai are both telling people to go back to Jerusalem, so they have prophets back in Babylon teaching them to go. And then we get to verse 8. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. And on the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, according to the good hand of his God upon him. For Israel had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. Like Mark Mark verse 10. What a great life verse. This is what makes Ezra great. It's not his administration. It's not his brilliant ideas. He's just this guy that does this. Uh, The first verses with all the months basically means it took him four months to get from Babylon to Jerusalem. That's a long hike. Steph asked to try to twist my arm just to get me to go hiking for an hour, but this guy hiked for four months. That's a long trip. A lot of people do the distance from Babylon to Jerusalem as the crow flies, but in reality, you would take a trip to go up the Euphrates and then you come back down along the flatlands. Otherwise, you're crossing a huge desert. You can do the desert crossing, but most traffic in the ancient world would do what they called the Fertile Crescent. They would travel up through habitated and cultured lands. Verse 10 says for. I think it's interesting that for the reason for all of this is that he had prepared his heart. You could say somebody just traveled, but verse 10 is why he traveled. Why did he make this journey? Why did he do this? Why did he even do any of this? And the reality is he prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord. If you want to know the law of the Lord, they're referring to the Old Testament. They're referring to the Torah. He, are, he decided in his heart, I'm going to study the Bible. And in studying the Bible, he saw the purpose of Jerusalem and the reason for Jerusalem. In studying the word, he started to understand that Israel was part of a greater purpose. In studying the word, you learn to think and live outside of yourself. This world is on a path that's much bigger than you. And Ezra does that, and it's part of what motivates him to go back, even though he's got a five-verse-long name. He's probably pretty comfortable back in Babylon, thanks to Esther and her legacy. And In fact, as we see this group coming back, we're going to see a list of names in the next chapter that are they're pretty like Jewish names again. 
unlike what we saw in chapter 2. But I love verse 10. It's because of this, to seek, to do, and to teach. And, and essentially, this hasn't changed throughout all of human history. We saw Jesus teaching it this morning. This idea of tending to yourself and tending to your heart and where it's at, but not just to read it. Like James says, don't just read the word, try to do the word. Live it. And Ezra adds a third aspect, which is to also teach it. So this, this ideal Ezra prophet-priest um, combines these things and, and, and puts them together perfectly. To seek is to actually read, study, be led by God's word, to do it, not just be a student or have it in your head, but be a practitioner of it. it means no hypocrisy. What you say and what you do are the same. To teach it is to answer, the answer to every question is to use or turn to the scriptures to see what the scriptures say. The full impact of the scripture on our life is that we share it with people we know. Here's what the Bible says. And we teach. If we want, likewise, to arrive at God's house, it might be a long journey, might be four months, maybe more. But the whole idea is the reason we make the journey, but also the reason we get to the other end, is that we seek, we do, and we teach. What does the Lord want us to do? Start by seeking the word. Verse 11, this is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave Ezra the priest, the scribe, the expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, scribe of the law of the God of heaven, perfect peace, and so forth. <laughs> I just like these letters. Ezra's kind of been a lot of these letters collected into one book. Um, so we can thank Esther for the renewed relationship with the king. We can thank the Greeks that the Persians have been humbled once again. And we, and we then get this new decree from Artaxerxes. Uh, not unique to the Jewish people, by the way. Persian records show that this was done with most of the provinces. There was some sort of a, we're going to be really nice to you so that you don't rebel. And so this was an act, unlike Cyrus and unlike Darius, this was done out of humility. I issue a decree that all those of the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites in my realm who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go with you. Instead of having rebels, people can just go back home. And this is kind of smart administration if you think about it. Um, volunteer means anybody that doesn't want to be here can go. And Artaxerxes is removing discontents from his empire, possible discontents. If you don't want to be here, don't be here. So volunteers get to go. Verse 14, and whereas you are being sent by the king and his seven counselors. Um, okay, this is called the haft. This is really cool history. The Persians have adopted certain things from the Jews at this point. And the number seven is not an accident. It's actually, they've adopted at this point in history, the Persian religious system, seven is a divine number for them. And they've adopted it. This affects multiple world religions on the planet today. And again, this is, I think, sometimes the enemy does this. They adopt things from a true religion, and then they take it into their own to give it a sense of, like, meaning and weight. Um, but it's called the heptad, um, or the haft for the ancient Persians. Um, Esther 1.5 has a Persian feast that lasts for seven days. They started conducting all official business in sevens. And the, the king started, and this is, again, the humbling of this empire, and the influence of the school of Magi right next to the throne room. So Daniel's school, that there's a, a heritage here. Um, so seven starts to become significant. In Herodotus, the great historian we reference a lot, 
he argues or makes the point that the Persians at this point had felt that many of their gods had died. And the only gods that were left were seven gods, the divine number of gods. So this heptad of gods um, included all the things you would expect, earth, fire, water, you know, war, all of this, all of the big gods survived. Um, and the only God not included, and this is interesting from what we read in Ezra, is the God of heaven. The God of heaven is not part of the heptad. So there's seven surviving gods, and the one that gets left out is Yahweh of their, their religious system. So this is interesting. Uh, the Persians have seven generals running their army. They have this legendary group of seven paladins that are their mighty warriors. They have seven magnates. Everything around the Persian Empire at this point in history starts to revolve around the number seven. Why? Because there, there's a certain respect here for the Jewish people and the influence that they've had. Um, this number seven carries into, you can dig into this, Zoroastrianism is based around seven gods and seven, uh, seven things. Manichaeism is another religion today. Seven becomes the central number of that religion. So it's weird that all these religions that pop out of Persia at this time are still on the planet today, and they all re revolve around like this false kind of weird version of Judaism that comes out. Another religion that adopts the number seven that comes out of this part of the world is Islam. So Islam believes in seven prophets, and um, obviously there are, in the Islamic belief, there are seven incarnations of God that have happened throughout history. Jesus is one of them. And they believe that in the, the Quran, there are seven sections to the Quran, and they've adopted those pieces. Point being, as these religions get invented, they're fully aware of the significance of these numbers. And again, some of you get into the number stuff, some of you don't. I share it because some of you kind of are interested. There are 12 tribes of Judaism. Islam has 12 imams. And the numbers carry over, not just the number seven, um, but they're there. The, the world is divided into seven regions. There are seven seas. And you start to see this happen throughout world history. Um, the, what's interesting for me about this is the Mahdi of Islam, the final prophet, according to Islamic belief, is going to come at the end of times and rid the world of evil just before Jesus comes back. And so there's a belief system there. Their belief is the Mahdi will kill Jesus and he's going to rule for seven perfect years of paradise on earth before everyone is turned Islamic. And that's their belief system. Again, you can see like when stuff starts to happen, the Islamic people won't be, they're going to be like, yeah, we expected this. Everything's going to fit with their prophecy up until the Mahdi doesn't quite kill Jesus. It works the other way around. So we'll see what happens at the end of time, but it, it, the showdown is on. Um, the point of all this, the seven counselors, to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. You have the law, and they're inquiring of this or asking what's going to go on. In other words, they're, they're recruiting and they're seeking counsel from the Jewish people. They're making an appeal. Verse 15. And whereas you are to carry the silver and gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel who is dwelling in Jerusalem. And whereas all the silver and gold that you might find in all the province of Babylon, along with the free will offering of the people and the priests, as long as people freely offer it, you can take it. So you can go around door to door just like they did in Egypt. Remember in Egypt before they left, people just started giving them stuff. 
get out of here. We don't want your plagues anymore. And they left with loads of money. Same thing's going to happen here. So they are to be freely offered for the house of their God in Jerusalem. Now, therefore, be careful to buy with this money bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offering and their drink offerings and offer them on the altar of the house of your God in Jerusalem. A little different than Cyrus and Darius. We don't get the honor of the God of heaven. They just are the God of the Jews. And there's a distinction here that this this, um, Artaxerxes makes. But he does know that offerings, like he understands that there's grain offerings and burnt offerings. He knows which animals the Jewish people sacrifice. Um, Verse 17 shows an understanding of Judaism that's very clear. Um, It could be that he's returning to the old ways of the Medo-Persian Empire where he's just appealing to this God. But you don't see the same respect that we saw with Cyrus and Darius. But he is giving money from the king's treasury, and the purpose of that money is, verse 17, he actually makes, uh, he says, be careful. Um, He wants it spent on sacrifices. So you guys worship this God, I'm going to send you a boatload of money, and and this is going to amount to millions of dollars worth of money, but I want that money spent on bulls, rams, and lambs so you can make an offering for Persia before your God in Jerusalem. This is an interesting thing. This is a non-believer saying, hey, I'm okay if you pray for me. And he's inviting it. So you can see how desperate the Persian Empire has become. They are crumbling. They will fall to Alexander the Great in a few years. So they are definitely on their heels and they're looking to appeal to every God that they're aware of. Verse 18, whatever seems good to you and your brethren to do with the rest of the silver... And gold, do it according to your, the will of your God. In other words, he gives Ezra discretion on how to spend the money. Also, verse 19, the articles that you are given to you for the service of the house of your God, deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem, and whatever more may be needed for the house of your God, which you may have occasion to provide, pay for it from the king's treasury. This is like giving me like a credit card and saying, do whatever you want. The only condition is, pray for me while you do it. This is a massive blessing. Read into this, a lot like Darius, full support and full funding from the king. Get that house finished. Do what you need to do. So it it wouldn't be hard here for the school of Magi after Esther to have this kind of influence on the Persian king. This is where Esther gets to be really important. It kind of fills a gap. Like, what was... What happened here? And why did we go from Xerxes and and a near genocide of the Jewish people to all of a sudden they're giving money and, and, and coaching this? Artaxerxes clearly learned from his father that maybe that God of Jerusalem should be honored at some level. So, verse 21. And I, even I, Artaxerxes the king, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the region beyond the river that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, may require of you, let it be done diligently. There we get the God of heaven back. So there's an understanding that Jewish God is maybe not a Persian God, but it's a, this is a real and a very powerful God that needs to be regarded. And for some reason that God wants to have a house in Jerusalem on a certain spot. And so even the Persians are recognizing that And then, of course, at the end of verse 21, let it be done diligently. Like, we get that word that we saw 60 years ago when Darius wrote his letter back. There's an expectation that they're not only about this business, they're about it with diligence. 
There's a high degree of trust that's being shown. And Ezra then is coming back um, with authority to use money and spend money, and he's given the title as both scribe and priest by the king himself, but he's not actually Artaxerxes. Verse 22, up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribed limit. Salt without limit. You can have as much as you want. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it diligently be done for the house of the God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? Again, that last line is every, that whole point. There is a belief by Artaxerxes that honoring this Yahweh God of heaven is actually good for him. Now, I don't know if he means that he's a follower of this God, but because he actually also idolizes false gods, like, okay, but there's definitely a regard and a respect. Why would I make an enemy of this God? Why would I want this God's wrath? So there's some belief, and this is what you don't hear when you're going through elementary school and you study the Persians versus the Greeks. They never show you this text. They don't go to the Bible to show the Jewish perspective on this. There is clearly a belief by the head of Persia that there has been some wrath by some god against the Persian Empire. The loss against the Greeks was only explainable to the Persians as a divine act. And I think this is interesting when you look at all of human history, how God sometimes intervenes in warfares and battles. And when you start looking at very small numbers of people winning these great victories, there is a belief or a good argument can be made that Artaxerxes perceived that he's, he needs to make things right with this God of heaven at some level. Also, verse 24, also we inform you that it shall not be lawful to impose tax, tribute, or custom on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, Nethanim, or servants of this house of God. If you work in the ministry, you don't pay taxes. And, and folks there, including America and the country today, churches don't pay taxes. They don't pay property taxes. They don't tax people that are in the ministry. And as Persia does this, um, I, I actually think this is a really good policy for them, that we're not going to tax the work of the house of God. Verse 25, and you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, there is a respect that Artaxerxes has for Ezra personally. They knew each other. And, and there's, a, there's clearly a trust that he gives, but he gives them the ability to set magistrates and judges, verse 25, who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God and teach those who don't know them. There's a respect for the law of God. This is kind of, again, you don't hear that the Persians regarded the Torah as wise, as good advice. Whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily on him, whether it be death or banishment or confiscation of goods or imprisonment. Artaxerxes actually gives Ezra the ability to bring consequences to people that break the law. So not only is he supposed to teach the Torah, he's supposed to enforce the Torah. So the Persian Empire is giving an order to the Jews to live according to the Torah. And this is why they kept the letter and put it into our Bible. This is great news. Like, he, they're actually being ordered to follow the law. And, and the, like, they had to get this note and just say, praise the Lord. Yes, we're under Persian authority, but the Persian authority told us to live according to how God wants us to live. Good move by Artaxerxes. That's the end of the order. It's a sweeping control given to the Jews v via Ezra, priest and prophet. 
24 gives them tax-exempt status. Gracious treatment from God, 25, gives them full administrative and civic authority to make the local governing rules. And verse 26 gives them full control of a judicial system. This is as close as you get to kingship and sovereignty without actually getting kingship and sovereignty. Ezra takes this amazing order, and then at the end of this chapter, he gives God the glory for all of it. Again, we see the Jewish people have changed. They're seeing God's hand in very mundane happenstance things that are going on in the kingdom. Verse 27, blessed be the Lord God of our fathers. Look at where the praise goes. Who has put such a thing as this in the heart, in the king's heart, to beautify the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem and has extended mercy to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. So I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, and I gathered leading men of Israel to go up with me. We get to see what a godly person does when things go right. We've seen a lot of examples of godly people when things go wrong. I like to see that when things are going good, they just take all of that good and bring glory to God with it. And huge amounts of money and control and self-governance has just been granted and the idea is blessed be the Lord God of our fathers not like look at how much God has blessed us it's we're going to take the blessings we have and we're going to bless God with those blessings beautifying the house taking care of the building um, and extending the mercy to him and his counselors before all the king's mighty princes like the Jewish people not only escape what could be ongoing persecution in, in Babylon, but they actually get away from the people that might actually turn on them later. And so Ezra was encouraged. The whole point of all this is just the degree to which he gains courage in seeing how God works through all these things. The hand of the Lord God was upon me. There's also a sense that not only is God working, verse 27, but verse 28, God works through people sometimes. And he can do both. And what an honor it is to have God use a person or to be used by God in the, in the advancement of God's kingdom. So Ezra sees this, you know, his job's basically a construction project. Go finish a building. And he sees this as just an honor to serve God and, and to take these things and to bring glory to God. And he sees himself as an agent of what God's commanded him to do. What a blessing that is. So he gathers leading men of Israel to go up with them. So now Ezra is in his own book, in Ezra chapter 8. These are the, I'm going to read a huge section here. Um, these are the heads of their father's houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylon in the reign of King Artaxerxes. This is wave 2. Wave 2, the sons, uh, verse 2, of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom, the sons of Ithmar, Daniel, the sons of David, Hattush, of the sons of Shechaniah, the sons of Parash, Zechariah, and registered with him were 150 males. Okay, okay, there were millions in Babylon at this point. These numbers are really small. This is a small remnant of people again. Still, it's kind of awesome. Verse 4, of the sons of Pahath, Moab, Eliahonai, the son of Zeraiah, with him 200 males, of the sons of Shechaniah, the Ben-Jahazel, and with him 300 males, the sons of Aden, Ebed, the son of Jonathan, with, fifth, with him 50 males, the sons of Elam, Jeshaniah, the son of Athaliah, with him 70 males, and the sons of Shephathiah, Zebediah, the son of Michael, with him 80 males, the sons of Joab, 
Obadiah, the sons of Jehiel, and with him 218 males, the sons of Shelomith, Ben-Joshaphah, and with him 160 males, the sons of Bebai, Zechariah, the sons of Bebai, the son of Bebai, and with him 28 males, that's a small group, and the sons of Asgad, Johanan, the son of Hakatan, and with him 110 males, the la of the last sons of Adonikam, whose name names are these, Eliphelet, Jael, Shemaiah, and with them 60 males, and also the sons of Bigvi, Uthai, Zabud, and with them 70 males. I could go through name by name. We did that in chapter 2. A lot more cool stuff in chapter 2. I think this is the takeaway from this list. These are all Jewish names. They haven't changed over to Babylonian names or Persian names. You'll see a lot of Yahs in here or AHs at the end of the name. That's Jah. That's the, the word for God or Jehovah. So you see a ton of those kinds of names throughout this list. The other thing to notice in this list is notice how many names sound really familiar. Daniel, David, Jonathan, Obadiah. We see a lot of names from the Old Testament. In other words, the Jewish people were starting to embrace their history. And they started to name their children with heroes from the past. We do this today. A lot of Christians name their kids over their favorite Bible characters. So you can see the study of the scriptures has gone up because we see names like Zechariah and Phineas, and they're popping up throughout this. The other piece with this list is a lot of them were the sons of so-and-so. These are people of high rank or high status. Common folks, when we saw the list in chapter 2, you didn't get a lot of sons of anybody. They were just Iron Man and Spike, right? Those were the names we got in chapter 2. This list are far more prominent citizens that have lineage, reputation, uh, the leadership of Israel is coming back with wave two. They're heads of households. They have additional males that come with them. So these household names, when it says they had 70, 110 males in verse 12, these are heads of family. So the word male there isn't just biological male. They were males that were heads of families. So when you take all of this together and you give your average number of wives and average number of kids per married couple, it's probably about six to 7,000 people that come back and wave to. So out of the, maybe the million Jews that were in Babylon, six, 7,000 doesn't feel like a heck of a lot, does it? On the other hand, six, 7,000 people are going to make a four-month hike to go plant God's kingdom and be, in God's, be with God's people again. So there's a remnant to Jews. Because it's 60 years later, this is probably the next generation of people where their hearts were stirred by the fact that something was happening over there. And they wanted to go back. A very unique group of people. Verse 15, Now I gathered them by the river that flows to Ahava, and we camped there for three days. And I looked among the people and the priests, and I found none of the sons of Levi there. Where are the Levites? Why are there no Levites in this group? Remember, Levites aren't priests. We had priests. Priests are one family amongst the tribe of Levi. The one family that's the descendant of Aaron and Zadok, they're serving as the priests. The rest of the Levites, remember, didn't get land or inheritance. The rest of the Levites were just workers and they supported the priesthood. So they would serve and they would serve in that kind of way. And Ezra's looking around going, hey, where are all the workers? What do you do when nobody shows up to do the ministry? And the people that typically were doing the ministry just don't show. 
And I think we see a neat example here. Ezra just gets other people to do it. If, they, if those people won't step up to do it, God's going to raise up other people to do it. Because God doesn't need titles and genealogy to do the work of the house of God. And again, this is a step away from Mosaic priesthood towards a Christ-like church. It's something kind of in between. And so, verse 18, they go round up workers. Then by the good hand of our God upon us, in other words, God led them in this, they brought us a man of understanding of the sons of Mahai, the son of Levi. Here's one Levite, the son of Israel, namely, Sherebiah, with his sons and brothers, 18 men, and Hashabiah, and with him Jeshaiah of the sons of Merari, his brothers and their sons, 20 men, and also, and this is key, of the Nethanim. The Nethanim were water carriers and lumber cutters, but now they're getting promoted. They're going to step up. Of the Nethanim, whom David and the leaders had appointed for the service of the Levites, 220 Nethanim. There's more Nethanim than all the other groups combined. And they're going to get brought into this role. And again, these are willing servants. It, it makes you go back and look at the thing where the Gibeonites deceived Joshua in a whole different light. That God was bringing people willing to serve him. They faithfully serve him. And even after Babylon, they're ready to go back and continue serving him. And God sees that. They've been faithful in the small things. They're going to get designated to larger things. And all of them were designated by name. So there's some record somewhere that records the names of all these Nethanim. We see an actual case of God's chosen not stepping up and God raising up other people to do it. Furthermore, the Nethanim were not Jewish. So God raised up non-Jews, Gentiles, to serve in his house. Again, this is one step towards the church or the, the times of the Gentiles where all of the world is called to serve in the house of God. And we being some of those Gentiles, I like to see the history in verse 20. So then he prays. Then I proclaimed a fast, verse 21, there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek him, Seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all of our possessions. I, again, another great verse to put on a t-shirt. Like you could live your life by this verse. You want to know what God has for you? We'll, we'll just stop. Fast, you know, as a way to appeal to God. Humble yourself before God. Seek him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. If you seek first the kingdom of God, all these other things are added to you. But what a great approach. And I think for people in times of confusion, don't keep going down the wrong path. Like the, the, you're actually adding more time to your return when you do that. If you don't know where you're going or where you're headed, maybe you should pause, fast, pray, humble yourself, and seek the right direction before you go forward anymore. Pause. Just take a stop. Another great piece of wisdom is if you find that you're backsliding, a good strategy is go back to where you, the last time you remember being close to God. Where was that and what did it look like? And at least get back to where you felt close to God. Go back to those activities and those places. There are examples in the Bible of empty fasting. Jesus calls out people on that. This is not one of those. The thing between godly fasting and empty fasting, I think is in verse 21, there's a humbling of themselves. By Jesus' time, people fast and make a big show of it. I don't think that's what they're doing here. They're fasting because they sincerely want direction from God. 
They don't know where they're going or where they're headed, but they want to humble themselves. Basically, to humble myself is to say, God, you know more than I do. I'm done pretending I know everything. So the little ones here, I, I appreciate as a dad that part of their attention is turned to the next generation. What we're going to do doesn't just affect what we're going to do, but they're now concerned about how their kids are going to grow up. Do, has, do we remember seeing that anywhere in the Old Testament? Like, this is pretty significant. Even David, King David, his kids were a mess, right? Solomon's kids split the kingdom. But we see this attention on the little ones that is kind of unique that we see pop up in verse 21 for, I, I think, the first time in the Old Testament, a very strong concern for children and taking care of children and training children. Distinct attention is given this passage. I think we're going to get into Proverbs and we'll see more about kids. But to see that in the histories is just, this is an emergent concern that's happening. Verse 22, for I was ashamed to request. That's an interesting phrase. In other words, again, this is part of humbling himself in verse 22. I was ashamed to request to the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road because we had spoken to the king. In other words, Ezra bragged a little more than he should have. What ancient text do you see people, like he's the writer and he's recording his own mistake. This is really rare in ancient, usually in ancient texts they brag about what they've done. But Ezra's like, I went to the king and said, the hand of our God is upon everybody who does good and seek him. But his power and his wrath are against all those. In other words, I can make the four month journey to Jerusalem and I don't need any help. I'm good to go. We're protected. But then they get down the road and they stop for three days going, okay, we need a guard. <laughs> there are bandits on the road and we're carrying millions of dollars in gold and silver. Maybe we over-promised. And the idea that in verse 22, he's ashamed to then go back to the king and say, hey, could we get an honor guard? I, I, I Honestly, I see Christians all the time that boldly say, God told me to do this and God told me to do that. And then it doesn't go that way. Well, did God really tell you to do that? And then what happens is confusion. Do I even know when God's telling me something or not? What do you do when you're confused like that? You stop. You humble yourself. Maybe I overpromised what God had told me and what he didn't tell me. And get yourself back on the right track. And, and in this sense, verse 23, so we fasted and entreated our God for this, and he answered our prayer. Then God, God shows up in our humility, not in our pride. And in our bragging, well, God's this, and I don't need anything. And, you know, you see some of these weird religious cults where, like, God, I'm going to walk on scorpions, and God's going to save me from that. No, you're going to probably get bit, and it's going to hurt. And I, I, you're testing the Lord God when you do that sort of thing. Can God help us walk on scorpions? Sure. Do we make a practice of that just to test him? Heck no. Can you get to Jerusalem without any bandits attacking you? Yeah, sure, but should you test God in that? Or should you wisely carry some mace with you if you're in the wrong neighborhood? Right? There's just this balance of a, a, a normal, common sense approach to life that we see Ezra practicing here. And it would be easy for, it would be, he has to lower his pride to go back to the king and ask for something that he bragged he didn't need. But he does it. And the Lord answered their prayer. And the answering of the prayer, uh, we get in Nehemiah, uh, the, the king grants them an escort. And they, they get guards to help them make the trip. Um, but we don't get that till Ezra. I think um, all, all, we don't get that till Nehemiah. All Ezra says is God answered their prayer. 
and we get that little piece. Um, I'm just blessed by the fact that someone like Ezra isn't perfect either. And sometimes he makes those mistakes. And God still loves Ezra. And he still appreciates what Ezra's done. And God has still given a lot, Ezra's given a lot of credit. It, the history books treat him very well. <clears throat> Verse 24. And I separated 12 of the leaders of the priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and 10 of their brethren with them, and weighed out to them the silver, the gold, and the articles, the offering for the house of our God, which the king and his counselors and his princes and all Israel who were present had offered. So what they're doing is pretty wise. They're taking all the money that God gave them for the ministry and they're spreading it in 12 directions. So if one group does get attacked by bandits, they lose one twelfth of the resources. This is just common sense. This is like actually having an accountant helping your church out or having someone else do the money than the person doing the ministry, right? And having some balance or accountability just is common sense. Um, it makes less of a target for the enemy because you're not putting all your eggs in one basket. So he weighed into their hand 650 talents of silver, silver articles weighing 100 talents, 100 talents of gold, and 20 gold basins worth 1,000 drachmas, and two vessels of fine polished bronze, precious as gold. And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord. Uh, This is an interesting thing. He gives these different leaders responsibility, and he trusts them with it. So he finds these people. Some of these names are the ones that stepped up when he said, hey, who's going to do the work? And it is extra work. If if you're going to take a four-month hike, that's bad enough. But now you're taking a four-month hike with a bag of gold on your back. That's heavy. So these people are taking on a huge responsibility for the kingdom. they got to carry this. And when it says talents, I mean, we're talking annual incomes in talents. This is a king's ransom. This is a country's budget, not a family's budget. So we're talking about millions of dollars in the form of metals that you got to carry on your back. And so you better have some camels and and mules to help you with that. But this is going to be a burden on whoever does it. And what he says to those volunteers, those workers, is he says, you are holy to the Lord. Not because they made themselves holy, but because they're willing to serve. They're willing to do the work and God sees that as precious. Who's willing to help? The articles are holy also. And the silver and gold are a free will offering to the Lord God of your fathers. What you're carrying is precious, like they needed to be told that. But I do think what he's talking about is that they're not precious in that they're worth a lot of money. They're holy in that they're something special to God in a spiritual sense. These are resources for God's work. So these are holy also. And what made them holy was that they were a free will offering. People gave this out of the generosity of their hearts. That's what makes it special. Watch and keep them until you weigh them before the leaders of the priests of the Levites and heads of the fathers' houses of Israel in Jerusalem, in the chambers of the house of the Lord. Thanks for doing the work. You are holy. You are carrying something that's holy. You're also going to have this amount that we've weighed out to you. Verse 26. They've measured and weighed it. You're going to get it weighed again when you get to Jerusalem. So there's accountability, right? If you take a little or skim a little off the top, we're going to know it. And look at the place where they're going to find out. In the house of the Lord. You're going to stand before God and be held to account everything you've been given and how you carried it and stewarded it. This is really similar to the the parables that Jesus told about accountability. 
God gives you a certain amount of responsibility in life and he expects you to treat it with a consecration, with a holiness. And you're going to stand before God and hold account for what you did with what God gave you. How did you treat it? What did you do with it? Verse 30, so the priests and the Levites received the silver and the gold and the articles by weight to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of the God. They take on their responsible stewards. And then we departed, verse 31, from the river Ahava on the 12th day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was upon us. And he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambush along the road. This is why we're worried about bandits. So we came to Jerusalem and we stayed there three days. In other words, in one verse, the whole trip went smoothly. Good trip. God didn't fall short. They didn't have any problems. And he delivered them. Now on the fourth day, the silver and gold and the articles were weighed in the house of our God by the hand of Merimoth, the son of Uriah the priest. And with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas. And with them were the Levites, Josabad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Binui. And the number and weight of everything, all the weight was written down at that time. This is interesting. If you got to take millions of dollars of money and split it up by weight amongst hundreds of people within your clan, what are the odds that one of them will take a little bit and throw it in their pocket? You got to have a pretty unified group of people that not one person skimmed. Not one person took gold away from God because they recognized the responsibility of it. So sometimes we call humanity very um, ugly. Humanity is sinful by nature. But in some cases, the Holy Spirit leads whole groups of people to do the right thing. And what an amazing thing that is in human history, when by the Holy Spirit, you can have a group of people that act righteously and they're faithful in their duties. And when that happens, the world changes. And God blesses those things. So it's written down, verse 34, according to Persian bureaucracy, likely what was written down in verse 36 was sent back to the emperor saying, all of your money got to Jerusalem successfully. And so they would document this, they would record it. Um, the fact that it was written down shows the influence of the Persian bureaucracy and how that works. Verse 35, the children of those who had been carried away captive who had come from the captivity, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, 12 male goats as a sin offering. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. So burnt offerings, as we know from Leviticus, are for sin. There's A burnt offering is where you take the animal, you put it on the altar, and you don't keep any of it for the feast. You give it all up to God. Because a sin offering is not something you want back. You want to give it up and let it burn and let the smoke rise to heaven. Uh, and it substitutes as a payment for something else. So a sin offering, disobedience to God, is sin. And the sin offering is to say, I'm going to give this up as a substituted payment for my sin. And notice the numbers here. I think this is kind of... It, the use of the number 12 is, is a layover from the 12 tribes of Israel. Even though there's one country here, they're still honoring that there's 12 groups of people that make up that country. Another piece of evidence that there's no such thing as lost tribes, there's a remnant from all the tribes that came to Judah. As they went to Babylon, there's a remnant from all the tribes that went to Babylon. As they came back out of Babylon, there's a remnant of all 12 tribes that are represented by these 12 offerings that get made. 
What's interesting is they don't go to 13 to cover the Nethanim. So they have other offerings. 96 rams is a multiplier of 12. 77 is not. Where'd the number 77 come from? Like this is a new number. And, and it's, we know seven is the number of divine completion, but the fact that divine completion gets attached to the lamb is a really curious little hobnob in this passage. Commentators have all sorts of guesses. One is that that's a hint that the, the perfect sacrifice will be a lamb, not an oxen or something else. The use of seven twice is to look for the complete number. There will be a seven, 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 which will be the perfect one. Again, you can get lost in this stuff. Um, but it is curious that you've got 12, 12 multipliers of 12, but with the lamb offering, there's now 77 in there. It's just a I don't know. For Bible scholars, it's a cute little quirk that, that could point to Christ. Um, that said, I wouldn't get too lost in that. Verse 36. And they delivered the king's orders to the king's satraps and the governors in the region beyond the river. So they gave support to the people in the house of God. Amen. Second wave, everything goes smooth. They're of one mind, they're of one heart, and this concludes the record of the second wave coming back. It says they gave support. Um, we're going to see in chapters 9 and 10, a lot of that support that Ezra gives is corrective. So the master scribe comes back after 60 years, and the people of Israel have fallen away from the law of God. So we're in, in 9 and 10, it's going to feel like at all of Ezra's support was to correct them from behaviors that were already falling into sin. And Ezra then becomes a Moses-like character, guiding the Jewish people to live righteously as they should. Um, and the first wave gets another wave of people backing in and coming in. Um, I think this would be a welcome infusion at this point of a lot of younger people. So these would be people that weren't old enough for the first wave or they weren't born yet. And so as you come in, you've got a fresh group of Babylonians that know what idol worship looks like and they're happy to get away from it. And so as they come to Israel, they're just like brand new believers ready to work for the kingdom of God and they're on fire for Christ. And they see Christ even in the fact that nobody stole the stuff. And so they're, they're looking at just godly living as a miracle in and of itself. And we should too. When you're walking around with other people that are living in a godly way, to not lose sight of the fact that that's kind of a miracle. When a group of human beings can just be decent human beings with each other, that's kind of a human miracle all by itself. And we start to see that God's people in Ezra and Nehemiah start to look at the world like that. Hey, these people are righteous. Nobody's stealing. They're decent folks. And they're infusing this. They're coming to do the work and the funding. And they got people stepping up, willing to do the work on the journey, but also when they get back there. So next week, we will probably do both 9 and 10 and wrap up Ezra. And then we get Nehemiah, which is the whole history all over again. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for Ezra and what an example he was. Not perfect, but humble. And um, a godly example in his humility. Not that he didn't make mistakes, but that when he made them, he said he was sorry. And he fasted and he prayed and he sought you out. Help us to do the same thing, Lord. Help us to learn from this. Help us to learn that a path to follow you sometimes means responsibility. Sometimes it means work. Um, but at the end of the day, it means seeking you humbly as we get into things. Help us to live with common sense. Lord, we don't do things to test you or to brag, but to glorify and honor you with our life and our actions. 
and um, to be someone, Lord, that's good stewards. And as you give each of us gifts and responsibilities in the kingdom, help us to not be frivolous with those things, to diligently do our job and to do it faithfully. So, Lord, as people are called to service to you, called to, to organizing their lives and living righteously, Lord, we shouldn't overlook those things and to know that you are watching and you're observing and that someday we'll come into account that everything will be weighed and we'll have to give account for how we did um, the work you gave us and how we how responsible how responsible we were with the gifts and talents you gave us. In Jesus' name, we just pray for your guidance in these things. Help us to walk through life in a way that honors you. And Lord, I pray for each person in this room. Bless them. I pray for each person listening to the recording. Bless them in all things. Lord, may we want return those blessings you give us with, with honor and glory. Um, so that your name gets elevated and praised in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.